Welcome to this week's podcast from Free Chapel in Orange County. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, check out our website at freechapel.org. We've been on a series called Listen to the Youth, but uh, I, I want to title my talk tonight, and it's actually going to be two parts. So I'm going to preach a sermon in, the, in this service and then a different one in the, in the sixth, but they go together. Um, but the title of my sermon tonight is How's Your Love Life? How's your love life? And it'll make sense, don't worry. But how is your love life? First Timothy 4.12, it says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. I'm gonna pray real quick if that's cool, and then we're gonna move on. Lord, we thank you so much. And God, let it not be my words, but Lord, I pray you speak through me tonight and let us encounter your love and let us know what you love, not just how you love, but God, what you love. And Jesus, we love you. Amen. Paul is talking to Timothy here, who is a young man. And um, this verse in 1 Timothy 4 says, do not let anybody look down upon you because of your youth. And, and what Paul is addressing in Timothy is saying, you have a voice. You have a voice. And I believe one of the biggest things that the devil will try to attack in Christians and in, in, in the body of Christ is our voice, is the things that we speak in our workplaces, in our families, in, in our own lives, is, is our voice that we speak and that the, the devil wants to hold that and bind that. He doesn't want us to speak with the words of God. He wants us to speak with the words of man. And so, yes, this is directed to a young man, but I believe that this is really what Paul is saying is no matter how old you are, no matter where you're at in your walk with God, you have the ability to have a voice to speak into people's lives. You have the ability to speak with the word of God. You have the ability to speak life. And he's saying, Timothy, does it doesn't matter how old you are. See, Timothy was a young man and he was in charge of 25,000 people in a church in Ephesus, 25,000 people. And, and, and there's division in the church. There's disunity in the church. And Paul is saying, hey, Timothy, I need you to address this disunity. I need you to address this, this confusion. I need you to address it. I know that some of these people may be older than you in age. They may be more, you know, more experienced in life, but I believe that God has given you the voice and the ability to speak to it and what is going on. But first, Timothy, you must, you must, you must have these five things in your life yeah, you must have five things that you're setting an example in. See, for the last five weeks in our youth ministry, we've gone through these five things. I'm going to do one tonight in the four and one in the six. And, and, and so he goes through the, the, the five things that you have to be an example in. And I think this goes across the board. It doesn't just apply to teenagers or young people or young adults. But I believe us as Christians, we need to get in this, this place of being an example in these five things. That when we speak, people listen. Just because we're saying something does not mean it is being heard. But when it's spoken under the presence and the word of God, there's something that carries weight with that. No matter how long you've been saved, no matter how long you've walked with God, no matter how old you are, whether you're very aged and seasoned in life or whether you're very young in life, that you have the ability to have a voice in this life. And I believe that tonight that God is going to begin to give us a key to unlock our voice. And some of us, maybe our whole lives, we've walked and we believe that our voice is not heard and should not be heard for various reasons. Maybe it's things that were spoken over you. Maybe it's incidences that have happened in your life. Or maybe you just feel like you're not good enough. But I believe that God has given us a voice. And God has given us the ability to speak into people's lives and unlock things in their life and unlock their voice. And God has given us this ability. 
So first we have to look at what, what, what did he address in Timothy? What are the things that he said? Timothy, as a young man, if you have these things, I believe that people will listen to your voice. If you have these things in your life, when they look at you and they try to discredit you, they can't because of these things in your life are in order. And there's five things. And the first thing he says, be an example in your speech. Be an example in your speech. I believe as Christians, we need to watch how we speak. We need to watch what we say, the words we say about each other, the words we say to each other, and the words that we say to ourselves can discredit our authority in people's lives very quickly. He's saying, Timothy, watch how you speak. Be an example in your speech and be an example with your words because your words have power. Every miracle that Jesus did, it began with a conversation. It began with words. It began with him talking with somebody. And I believe that in our conversations, there could be miracles that could be birthed if we are speaking the word of God. I believe that our words are life-giving. In John chapter 11, Jesus said to Lazarus, come back to life, and he came back to life and walked out of the tomb. So they give life. Your words have the ability to give life. It's either life or death. There's nothing in between. It's either we're speaking life into people's situations, life into people, no matter if they've hurt us or done us wrong, we can either speak life or death, and there's nothing in between. Your voice and your speech has the ability to give life. Your, your, your speech has the ability to have power and be powerful. In Matthew chapter uh, uh, 17, it says, a faith of a mustard seed can say to a mountain, cast into the sea, and it will be going to the sea. It, there's power in your voice. The ability to say to one thing, move, and it will move. To say to your situations, you know, open up, clear up, the diagnosis, be healed. Things can happen in power in your voice if you begin to speak in the way that God has called us to speak as, as Christians and believers. The third thing is it, it gives you identity. Your, your, your speech, our words, are, are an example of identity. It says in Galatians chapter 3 that in Jesus we are all children of God. And then when we begin to doubt ourselves, we begin to say, I am a child of God. When somebody begins to doubt themselves in our community, a brother or a sister, we say, you are a child of God. There's identity in our speech. There's uniqueness in your voice and in your speech. It's you and it's unique. You don't have to talk the way everyone else talks because that's how we're supposed to. You need to talk and be who God has created you to be. It says that we are all fearfully and wonderfully made in Psalms 137. It also says that we are the potter, that he is the clay. He is molding and shaping us, that we all have a uniqueness to the words that we say and the way that we encourage other people. So be yourself. The fifth thing and the final thing is that your words carry destiny. Your words carry destiny. It says in Romans chapter 10 that if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, you shall be saved. Your eternal destiny is set in stone by the words that you confess to God. Your words have the ability to speak destiny. So he says, okay, Timothy, you need to watch how you speak. Be an example on how you speak. Be an example in what you say. But the next thing is be an example in your conduct. So you can't just talk to talk, Timothy. You gotta begin to walk the walk. You gotta ha your life has to begin to back up the words that you're saying. If you're saying this, your life should be right alongside of it. Your life should match your words. There's a story in, in John where, where Jesus was about to be arrested and Peter freaked out and he cut off a dude's ear. 
And sometimes I believe that's a representation of us as Christians that are re- are, 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 we, we react out of passion and we react out of zealousy, but sometimes we remove the ear and the listening ear to God and we push people away from church because we react instead of responding in the way that Jesus would have responded. See, Jesus wants to heal the ear and heal the person who's saying, I want to hear God. But oftentimes our actions as Christians and our conduct as Christians, it cuts them off from hearing the voice of God because we react based off our feeling and emotion instead of God, help me respond the way you would call me to respond. My, my, my pastor, Pastor Wendell Smith, would always say this, attitude affects conduct, conduct affects character, and character affects destiny. That the way you live is directly correlated to your attitude, and then your attitude affects the way that you live, and the way that you live affects your character, and your character will ultimately affect what you do in your life and who you become. So he's saying, okay, Timothy, you got the speech down, but now you got to walk the walk. you gotta, you, you got to back up your talk with the way that you walk and the way that you live and the conduct of your life. And then he begins to move on and he says, okay, you got those two things down. And this is where we're going to focus tonight because our title of our talk tonight is How's Your Love Life? And he says, now you need to be an example in how you love. Paul says this is, you know, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Or Jesus said that, I think. <laughs> One of the two. <laughs> Paul, yeah, it was Paul. But faith, hope, and love, and he says the greatest of these is love. And oftentimes we can get the words right, we can get the conduct light right, but we don't get the love right. See, Paul was moved to the third thing. He says, be an example in how you love. See, in this passage, it uses a a Greek word called agape love, which is divine love, divine love, and how God would love. He doesn't just love how humans would love. See, oftentimes when we think of love and love with the Father, it's, it's through a perspective and a lens of human love. Human love is based off emotion and feeling and, oh, this is awesome, oh, we... But it's not about that. It's not about the emotions. It's not about the feeling. It's about the way that God loves us. And if he loves us like that, then now we can reciprocate it because he did it first. So it's agape love. And, and, and Jabin touched on this so beautifully today. So agape love. And in 1 Corinthians 13, it shows us this is how God loves. This is how God loves. In 1 Corinthians 13, it says this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. That is how God loves. That is how God loves. God loves unconditionally. God loves without a hidden agenda. He's not trying to get anything from you. He just wants you. He just wants relationship. There's no hidden agenda in God's love. There's no hidden, you know, uh, loopholes that you have to, you know, sign this contract. And if you don't do these things, well, you're, you no, it's God's love is unconditional. It's unmerited. It, you don't have to earn it. It's given freely. It's given to you and saying, if you want it, you can have it. Here it is. Here's my heart. That's how God loves. And we know how God loves, and we know that he loves us unconditionally, without merit, or without, based on our merit, without a hidden agenda. And yes, that's how we have to love, but I think what's more importantly is we have to learn 
what God loves. Not only do we love how God loves, but we need to begin to love what God loves. See, in this Greek, the agape love, in Greece, they would have known, in ancient Greece, it would have actually meant preference. What's your preference? The things that you prefer, the things that you like, the things that you're drawn to. So what he's saying, he's saying, Timothy, you need to love the things that God is drawn to. You need to love the things that God loves. Not only do you need to love how God loves, and everything that you do should be through the love of God, but you need to begin to learn what God loves. I think oftentimes as Christians, we, we always talk about how God loves, and it's so beautiful, and it is so amazing, and that is the story of grace. But sometimes we miss what God loves, and we forget the things that God actually loves. So let's turn to Luke chapter 7, the gospel of Luke. And I believe that in this story, it, it really begins to line up the things that God loves what God loves. And in Luke chapter seven, there's this, there, there, there's this picture of Jesus and he's at, a, he's at a Pharisee's house and they're reclining, it says. That's pretty awesome. I wanna recline with Jesus when I'm in heaven. They're relaxing. They're at Copacabana. They're like, hey, come on. They all got Tommy Bahama shirts. They, you know, got the, you know, they got the smoothies. They're loving it. They're loving life. They're reclining at the table. They're hanging out. And then in comes a prostitute. In comes a lady of the night. In comes a person who's been broken and hurting. And she comes and she begins to weep at Jesus' feet. She begins to clean his feet with her hair. And then she, begins to, she proceeds to break an alabaster box over him and anoint him with oil. And we have one representation of the Pharisees saying, whoa, 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 why would you let her do that? Do you know who she is? And Jesus is saying, those who have been forgiven much love much. So in Luke chapter seven, this is our story and I'll begin to read it here in verse 37. It says this, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that she was reclined, uh, when she learned that he, as Jesus, was reclining at the, ter- at the table in a Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flax of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe it with her hair. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. And now the Pharisee who had invited him saw this and said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this was who was touching him, for she is a sinner. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, we jump down to verse 44. He turned toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but for the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with the ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. But he, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We have this crazy picture of this woman who came in off the streets, working the streets, man. She was working it. She comes off the streets. She sees Jesus and she begins to break down and she begins to weep. She begins to cry. She begins to, 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 to wipe his feet with, his, with her hair and, and, and her tears. And, and, and she's broken before the Lord. And then she takes something that's so valuable to, valuable to her and she begins to break it over Jesus. And like I said in this story, I believe it represents not only how God loves, but it represents what God loves. And I think the first thing is this, that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. He loves you for your past. He loves you for your mistakes. He loves you despite your sin, despite your failures, that Jesus loves you despite what family you come from, despite you know, the things that the devil may say, that Jesus loves you as an individual. 
Jesus loves you and the person that he created. He loves it the way that you look. He loves the personality he gave you. He loves the way that you talk, the way that you laugh, that Jesus is so madly in love with you that he died for you as a person, as an individual. And oftentimes we look and say, wow, Jesus died for the whole world, but we don't believe that he actually died for us. But I'm telling you today that Jesus is madly in love with you as the individual. So the first thing we learn is he is in love with you, this woman who has sins, and he says, they are many, but yet he still loved her. So those of you tonight who maybe feel like you have disqualified yourselves because of the mistakes that you have made, guess what Jesus says? I see that they may be many, but I still love you because you are my creation, and you are my son, and you are my daughter. So if the first thing that Jesus loves is us as the individual, my question to you tonight is, do you love yourself? Do you love you? Because we have to learn to love what God loves. Do you even love yourself? When you look at yourself in the mirror, do you either cringe and, 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 and defeat and guilt and shame and condemnation, or do you look at yourself and say, I am a creation of God. I am a child of God. I am called by God. But my question to you tonight is this, do you love yourself? Now, oftentimes we think that that identity and insecurity is a young person issue, but really it's not. What happens is we just learn how to mask it a lot better when we get older. We learn how to cover it up a little bit better when we get older. But insecurities and fears and, and those things that make us feel like we're less than, they grow with us if we do not deal with them. And we have to be able to look at ourselves and say, you know what, God, I love me. Not in an arrogant way, not in a prideful way, but in a confident way that God created you the way he wanted to create you. So if we have to learn how to love what God loves, my question to you tonight is, do you love yourself? Do you love the creation that God made in you? Do you love who you are and the, and the personality he gave you and the way that you look and the way that you act? Do you love that you are a child of God? The second thing is this, is he says, okay, we, we, we learn that he loves the individual. He loves you, he loves me, he loves us despite our sin, despite our past, despite our shame. But he also begins to say he loves everyone. In the story, we have two opposite sides of the social you know, classes. We have two uh, different uh, ethnicities, two different people, two different backgrounds, two different families. We have the prostitute, the person who's working the streets, and we have the Pharisee who's reclining with Jesus, who has money, who has status, who has everything. And the second thing that Jesus loves is he loves everyone. Jesus is not prejudiced. Jesus doesn't look at a, a skin color and say, this one's better. Jesus doesn't look at a social class and say, this one's better. Jesus loves everyone. Jesus loves despite social class. Jesus loves despite family issues. Jesus loves everyone. And my question to you tonight is, do you love everyone? Do you love everyone? Despite social class, despite skin color, despite those things in our lives that sometimes because we have grown up in the world, we have created these bias in our heart and we can actually honestly ask ourselves, do you love everyone the way Jesus does? Without prejudice, without, without favoritism, do we love everyone? Because yes, we can learn that, we have, that God loves the individual and we love ourselves, but my question to you tonight is do you love everyone the way Jesus did? Because Jesus was reclining with a Pharisee and he was also worshiping with a prostitute. And in this story, we have two opposite sides, but yet Jesus loved them both. 
See, it says that, that those who are forgiven little love little, but it never changed how much Jesus loved them. See, the Pharisee may have loved Jesus less because he was self-righteous and feeling like he didn't need him, but Jesus didn't love the Pharisee any less. Jesus loved him just as much as he did the prostitute, just as much as the person who was in sin, just as much as the person that was broken. But the thing is, she knew she was broken. He did not. But my question to you tonight is, do you love everyone? Do you love everyone? Even those who have hurt you, even those who have offended you, even those who have created bitterness in your heart because of things that they said to you or done to you, do you love them? Because Jesus does. Even though they did hurt you and it wasn't right and there's no just, we're not justifying what they did or what they said, but Jesus loves them despite their mistakes just as much as he loves you despite yours. So do we love everyone? Not only do we love ourselves, but we have to learn to love everyone. And this is where I finish and this is where I close. So Leonard, you can come up. The third thing is this, is that Jesus loves worship. First thing is he, 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 he loves you as the individual. He loves who he created you to be. He loves the way that you look. He loves the way that you act. He loves your personality. He loves everything about you because he created you. He created you. Second thing is he loves everyone. Jesus is not prejudiced. Jesus is not, uh, is not biased, but Jesus loves everyone. The third thing is this, is that Jesus loves worship. Worship is a position in the things in our lives. And, and, and see, worship is not just the singing of a song or lifting of the hands. I believe this woman gave us a perfect picture of what worship truly is. See, oftentimes we don't know what the alabaster box represents, but really what that represented was success in her work, in her line of work. This perfume that she would put on would attract men to her business so she could make money. This was her way of making a living. This was her way of feeding her family. This was her way. This is what she used. So to us, it means nothing, but to her, it meant everything. And worship is, is this obedience to God of giving these things up in our lives and receiving what he has for our lives. Giving the things up that maybe mean something to us and holding on, that we're holding on to into our hearts and receiving what God has for us. See, I, I, I don't believe that someone had to go and tell this woman, hey, you know what? You need to go get that box off your dresser and you need to break it over Jesus' feet. But there was something inside of the control center of who she is in the center of her soul and the center of her spirit that began to speak to her and say, this is what you're doing and, and, and that's not who I created you to be. She didn't need a sermon. She didn't need a church service. She just heard the voice of God, that still small voice. And I think the keys to worship are this. Number one, she had to humble herself. Worship takes humility and vulnerability. The second thing it takes is obedience. It takes obedience to say, okay, God, I'm giving you what I have so I can receive what you have. It takes humility to admit that we actually need something from God. It takes humility to admit the things that we have in our life are not supposed to be there. It takes humility to say, okay, God, I know I shouldn't be in this relationship right now, so I'm going to give it to you. God, I know that business deal that's going down isn't, isn't ethical and isn't right, so I'm going to give it to you because I know that that's what's bringing in the money, but Lord, I want to do it your way, so I'm going to give you what's mine so I can receive what's yours. 
And it doesn't matter if we're, yo we're old or we're young or we've been in the faith for a long time. Christianity is not a religion. In fact, Christianity itself is a religious concept of human beings. That's not what Jesus thought up. Jesus thought of a relationship. He thought of a God walk. His design and his thought process was walking with me and talking with me and becoming like me. But through time and through, uh, and through society, it's become something that it wasn't meant to be. It wasn't supposed to be. It was never meant to just be this religious gathering on the weekend that we check off the box. But it was meant to be a daily relationship with God when we hear His still small voice and we humble ourselves and we obey and we give those things up on a daily basis and say, God, we are in this together. So what do you have for me today? So yes, God loves everyone, but I look at this Pharisee and I be, sometimes I even picture myself in, in the times where I become so self-righteous with myself and that I'm doing good and I'm acting good and I'm living good so I can just recline and relax with Jesus. I can just recline. I've done it. I've, I've checked off the boxes. I've been in church my whole life. I've done all these things. And I'm a pastor's kid. I know every sermon. I know all, I've heard it all. But where it changed was this, is when I stopped reclining and I started worshiping. That's where it changes. It's when, we, when we stop coming to church thinking let's just recline and sit back and get it over with. And then we come into, we come into church with a different mindset and a different perspective that when I'm coming in, I'm listening for that voice to tell me what I need to give up. And I'm going to give it up and obey. Why? Because I know that God has something better. God has something better than anything you are holding on to. God has something better. I understand relationships can be difficult because your heart is involved, but guess what? If God is speaking to you, give it up. He has something better. If it's a business deal, guess what? God has something better. If it's an addiction and you feel like you can't get free from anything else, that this is the only thing that you can use to escape your pain and your hurt, guess what? God has something better. And what Paul was saying to Timothy was so important. Timothy, if you want to have a voice in somebody's life, you need to love what God loves. You don't just get to have a voice, but you need to start to be an example. And then when we begin to be an example in these things, guess what God does? He unlocks our voice. You got to learn how to love how God loves unconditionally without a hidden agenda, but learning what God loves is important as well. Do you love yourself? Do you love who you are? Maybe you're in the midst of sin and pain and hurt and you're filled with condemnation and guilt and you really do not love who you are. You don't love yourself as the individual. When you look at yourself, there's only hate and pain and hurt. God wants to set you free from that because he has something better. He has something better than that. God didn't create you to, to hate yourself when you looked at yourself. God didn't create you to beat yourself up every time you made a mistake. God did not create you to live in self-loathing and self-pain. God created you to live in freedom and to be free indeed and to be yourself. God has something better than condemnation and guilt. Maybe you struggle with loving everyone and we can all, sometimes we have to take an honest look at our hearts and say, do we struggle with loving other people? 
Maybe it is because of race. Maybe it is because of social class. But maybe it's just because somebody's hurt you and offended you. Guess what? God has something better than your bitterness. God has something better than your pain. And the longer we hold on to it, the longer we miss out on what God has that's better. The longer we hold on to our bitterness means the longer we miss out on the better that God has for us. What that person did to you was so wrong. That person that cheated you on that business deal, it was wrong. That person that said those things over your life and said you were nothing, it was wrong. But the longer we hold on to it, guess what? It gives them power in our life. But the moment we say, okay, God, I'm breaking the alabaster box on your feet and I'm saying, I want what's better. There's something that now begins to shift the power to God. Say, God, you have the power in my life. And the last thing is, we have to learn to love worship not for the singing of a song or the religious motion of just doing because that's what we do in church, but learning to love worship for what it really is. And that's denying ourselves, denying our preferences. See, it's agape love, it's God preferences. We deny our human preferences and we say, okay, God, in worship, I wanna receive your preferences. My preference isn't to sing as loud as I can and lift my hands during a service around people around me because I'm a terrible singer. I'm a terrible singer. I think I'm good, but I'm terrible. That's not my preference, but why do I sing and why do I lift my hands? Because I know that it tickles the eardrums of God and I love him so much and everything that he's given to me, I can't help myself. Do we love what God loves? Do we love what God loves? Let's stand together as a community. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you were blessed.